Welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. I'm excited, as I often am, accused of being, especially on this show, uh, to talk with Mr. Jeremy Clark today. How are you, Jeremy? Hmm. I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Perfect time. I catch you with a mouthful of coffee. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah, going to be yeah. chatting about two of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe sound a little nerdy when I say two of my favorite topics, neuroscience for one, and just financial acumen, financial savvy, the world of being an investor and being rational and irrational all at the same time. So let's start off, let the guests have a little bit of peer into you or your world. So you're president CEO at CH Financial Limited and you're based here in Calgary. That's correct. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about CH Financial. We'll start from there. So CH Financial uh, started about 32 years ago in Calgary, and it was started as a pure financial planning firm, which meant my boss at the time would do financial plans and charge clients a fee to do those. And then if someone needed investment advice or a tax return or a will prepared, he'd refer out to other firms. Mm -hmm. So fast forward 32 years, two uh, consolidations later, I'm the majority owner now. It's called CH Financial. We still do a lot of financial planning, but now we have a full suite of investments. We do a lot of in-house tax work. We have lawyers that do wills with us. Uh, we do a lot of insurance work now, a lot of business succession planning, um, everything except for banking, really. And we're independently licensed, meaning we're not beholden to a bank. Okay. And are you guys tied to like a Raymond James or like, do you still like, just to understand how the world works, do you have to, it's, I don't know, it's not underwriter, it's not the right word, but who are you affiliated with that way to to steward this the investment process? Yeah. So no, it's a good question. And uh, there's lots of terms. Uh, I it's it, it's called the sponsoring dealer. Okay. okay. Thank, thank you. That's a new that's a new term. I'm gonna yeah. Okay. Sponsoring dealer, and in our case, it's Industrial Alliance or IA Wealth. Okay. Uh, company out of Quebec City, so it's about a 130 year old Quebec insurance company that holds my securities license. Okay. So they're responsible for compliance, oversight, trading, authorizations, things like that. Okay. So they kind of keep everything honest and also give people the trust that this is part of a bigger, it's all part of the institutionalized, how to create it, make a safe environment for investors. Yeah, exactly. Which is important. I mean, people hopefully like us, but we have to have the underpinning of a financial system underneath them. I think there's tons of stories, and especially in Calgary, of deals gone astray where it's just a couple of guys who put some sort of deal together. And there's not really a lot of recourse for that if something goes wrong. There's no protection for the investor. Yes. And is that also part of our, our Canadian system that allows investors to be protected? Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's actually one of the great things about, I would say, the, uh, the, the Canadian, uh, American, British system is that there are these checks and balances. And quite frankly, most clients will never see it or have to utilize it, but it's still there. Um, you know, you can go to the bank and get a GIC and you have a really good degree of confidence that... In one year, if you're getting paid 0.75% on that G, uh, GIC, you're going to get that money. It's not going to disappear. I remember when I moved to Calgary 20 years ago, I was like, I'm not sure where I'm going to be. I was young, starting my career as a pilot. And I, I think I locked in a GIC for, I forget how many years, at almost 10%. <laughs> to hear you say 0.75% and then, but again, interest rates, everything was different, but it just, you just took me back to like 20 years ago and just the significant change in that yield on that product. <laughs> I remember to that, to that point, um, we had the mother of a client of ours, this is about two years ago, phone us and say, I have a 25 year GIC that's coming due. The interest rate was about 13%. <laughs> says you know god bless her she says and i'm hoping i can get something similar for a similar level of risk <laughs> and we had to gently say good for you for getting that investment but uh times are different now no nope. uh, for for better or for worse no kidding but the counterbalance is you know and maybe if she had debt that that was also significantly less like we do have to look at those two things in correlation like i think i got a five-year variable and i got them notice the other day it was i'm thinking at 1.3 percent like, yeah. so I can't expect to get a big yield on my investments over here when I'm only paying, you know, 1% on my money over there. Well, you know, it's interesting. That's a, that's a really good societal point, actually. If you were to look a generation or two ago and there was this big push to pay down debt, right? So that, so this, so the, this older lady uh, didn't have any debt, right. did back at the time, doesn't now, but it was really, people really wanted to pay down their debt. And if you can pay down your debt and you're making a good amount of rate of return, you know, obviously those two factors really propel you forward. I think right now, um, I believe Canadian personal debt is still the highest in, in the in the G20. That is number, like amount of debt per person in Canada. Mm -hmm. 
And with these low interest rates, really you can carry that forward for a long time. And you know, the consequence is certainly not immediate of having that kind of debt as a, as a as an individual person. Is is that not problematic though? Are we not are we not building a bomb? And again, that's the rhetoric like, oh, interest rates can't stay low, low forever, but yet they've been low for a long time. I think you know, I think this is maybe where we make the tie in. Uh, okay, I'm going to put put a pin in that question. You did not start by going to school to become a financial uh, like advisor. Am I correct? This like let's get back to let's let, let's set the stage for the audience before we get into the psychology of investing. Exactly. Exactly. So you um, have a background in neuroscience. I have background in neuroscience. I have uh, I had a pretty random education. I was high school in uh, southwestern Ontario. Uh, I lived in Michigan for a few years going to school. Um, so right around the northern Detroit area. So you get a really good perspective on the world when you're going to downtown Detroit on a, on a regular basis. Um, went to Montreal to go to school to McGill and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, oh, what's the worst that can happen? I get a good degree from a good school. Um, it, it's an awesome school. I'm still heavily involved with it. And neuroscience is a pretty cool field. Um, certainly wasn't the best student, but uh, I do have a degree, which has allowed me to do a lot of cool stuff with the school uh, afterwards. So uh, I pivoted right at the school. I never actually worked in a scientific field. I went into this field at the age of uh, 23, so 22 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Interesting. So, and I don't know how to use the word self-taught, but you got into the world of, of what you're in now by, did you take courses? I'm always curious of people's origin stories. Like, did you take courses and training or did you just get into it and started working and then just keep skilling up as the as the career unfolded? Uh, yeah, let me answer it this way. I, I took enough courses so that I could go with someone and I think this guy's an idiot who just doesn't know what he's doing. So uh, I, took, I took the Canadian Securities course, uh, CIM. So I'm, I am a certified investment manager. Uh, and a fellow of the Canadian Securities Institute. So these are sort of the top investment management designations. Um, but most of my learning, honestly, was on the job. Okay, uh, I've taken a lot of tax courses over the years because a lot of what we do centers around tax, which is different than most advisors. So a lot of my education at this point and upgrading is still in the, in, in the world of tax, corporate, personal tax, trust, because uh, those things are ever changing, you have to stay on top of them all the time. Well, in the reality, the old joke, right? It's not how much you make; it's how much you keep. And obviously, tax plays a significant role in that as one of our biggest line items in terms of you know revenue revenue earning Canadians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and during my education, like I would say in my twenties, I was working for a guy, really bright guy, very personable. He was a CA, um, I, and I learned how how clients are loyal to you. Like if you're a nice human being and you care about them, they can feel that. And conversely, if you take your eye off the ball, they can feel that too. Uh, and in this case, he started drifting into things that were more like off-book assets, side deals, uh, stuff that's not regulated by the securities industry. And that's when things started going a bit astray. And my partner at the time, she and I decided we had to separate the businesses. So we took you know, the boring type of business. Yep. And he took the exciting deal world and we separated those businesses. But two very, very different like target. Like one sounds like a little bit more of the, I, I find sometimes psychologically there's like, there's this fear of missing out in the financial world. Like, you know, we all have those buddies that always tell those stories about the big score and whether it was real or whether it's not, or it's the buddy who goes to Vegas and always seems to make money. Vegas doesn't work that way. Just doesn't tell you those other times when he loses money versus the, the slow and steady and like planning for the future. So clearly you leaned more into the, let's think of this about the, you know, the, the infinite game versus this finite, like chasing quick wins and, and probably some quick losses. Well, and, it, and you're exactly right. And one of the, the challenges that, that you have is if you're doing deals like that, a lot of people try to advise and do deals in the same business. You're sitting in front of clients and let's say 20% of the net worth is in these side deals. All you talk about is the deals then, because that's exciting. You know, you have a hotel, you have a nightclub, you have a warehouse unit. And the client in their eyes is saying, okay, that's great. And the, and the initial deals were really, really good. I mean, you're talking 300% capital gains, 10% rate of return per year, like really good investments. But the client is like, okay, what about the rest of my stuff? What about my tax return? How does... Uh, how do I gift money to my kids? How about setting up a trust? What about an RESP, um, TFSA? All the things we should be talking about. You end up getting so focused, and the client does too, about, okay, tell me the latest thing you're working on, that you become distracted from your real job, which is making sure this person and their family are financially sustainable, uh, hopefully for multiple generations. 
And that really is the mandate of our firm. I, I, I appreciate that. And if you think coming back to the neuroscience side and the world we live in, as we all become more aware of our, you know, serotonin and dopamine and like our quick hits and our social media, like I really hear that one side is like more getting, getting addicted to the chase and the reward cycle versus the long and slow and steady, which sometimes doesn't, well, to be honest, it doesn't always give you instant gratification. <laughs> exactly. And you could end up really kind of, kind of chasing your tail around, so to speak. If you, you know, it's, I was actually on a call with an investment manager of ours the other day, and he said, with a lot of casinos being closed now, he feels a lot of the money you're seeing in the, in the stock market, a lot of it is basically casino money coming in because people want those quick hits. So you see some pretty wild gyrations throughout this year. Obviously, the pandemic's had a big impact, but you see some pretty wild gyrations even during the day in terms of price of certain stocks, especially ones that are really well covered. It's like all of a sudden people pile into Shopify, which is an awesome company. Uh, I do a lot of online shopping, so I <laughs> really like their, their platform. But this is a company that really doesn't have um, profit to, to speak of. Mm -hmm. So you can't even apply a metric of how much are you paying per dollar of profit. There is no profit. There's an expectation of profit. Uh, Tesla is much the same way. Awesome product. Charismatic CEO. Not a profitable company. So and yet people just pile into it. Someone showed me a, a, um, a two charts, and it was the increase in the money that has been since the start of COVID been put into Robinhood, the commission-free stock trading platform in the U.S. And they lined it up, almost overlapped it to the increase in Tesla stocks, and it was almost identical. And they and they made some analogies of like younger investors completely leading with their heart, also the gambling, the like, I needed something, I'm going to follow this. So, and it, you know, obviously it was very um, subjective in terms of the way they presented it, but it was interesting. You couldn't see the two graphs and go, hmm, makes me think about where. And then also, like you said, that money goes in, it goes out. It's very emotional money because you can just, you can buy and sell with a click of a button. There isn't necessarily a check and measures to slow you down. Feels a yeah. lot, it feels a lot like a video game. <laughs> exactly. And to your earlier point, you don't like, we have to report our numbers by the CFA Institute standard reporting, uh, which is the worldwide standard of financial reporting. So we're held to a pretty high standard of, okay, what is a rate of return? Uh, annualized, three-year, five-year, year-to-date. No individual investor on their own ever really reports that way. Right. Uh, like you said earlier, what they're saying is, I had a couple, like, these are my these are my two great wins. And you're like, what about your your losses? And, uh, and they just, well, you know, yeah, there's a couple here and there. Well, what was the rate of return? And then you just, they don't have an answer. Um, I was talking to a client the other day, uh, somebody about my age, so, so mid-40s. Longtime client, really, really smart woman. Uh, she was executive with CP for years, and she's had Apple in her in her own portfolio. So she has some stuff with us and does some on her own. And she's always talking about, you know, Apple does this, Apple does that, and she's she's made some good money on it. Now, I would say Apple's pretty overvalued at this point, mm -hmm. um, but she's made some good money on paper. But she also had two investments years ago, which were these side deals mm -hmm. that that she found with with her ex husband, and both of them went to zero. So even if even if your Apple stock went up a thousand percent, you're you're still down because you had two investments. So she put fifty k into each of them that disappeared on you, mm -hmm. and you have to factor that into your return. People just tend to go, well, you know, that was just play money anyway. I'm like, well, if we're going to really judge return versus return, you got to put those in there. So what's the psychology? I guess I guess the more of the question, we're all probably nodding and we all either have done something similar or, or no, or like let's just say we have a friend. We have a friend who does that. We don't do that. What's the psychology around that? And as you bring your two hats together as the investment advisor, but also also humans, we're mess we're a little bit messy and we're also very emotional. I guess what checks and measures, you know, aside from having an advisor kind of have that sober second thought, just as individuals, how do we get that under control a little bit more and maybe be just better stewards of our own thought process around money? I think one of the key things to do is whenever you feel yourself reading something and getting emotional about it as it pertains to money. Mm. And, and so, you know, money really is not an emotional thing. We've made it emotional as human beings. We place value on it. It's a stacking order in society. Um, if you are reading something going, oh my goodness, I have to do something. Don't do anything. Sit on it. Think for a day or two. I think that that is probably the biggest key to say, because people will read something and go, okay, I got to get into this. I don't want to get left out. I got to do something. FOMO, FOMO is a real disease. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I would say, unless you're sitting on a pile of cash, which we don't usually advise, uh, the best thing to do most days when it's really volatile is don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Just <clears throat> sit on what you have. 
And in our case, we have really good managers who tend to buy as things are going down. So, you know, the old adage of buy low, sell high. Yep. Very, very tough to do on a regular basis. And even for me, you know, I don't sit in my office buying and selling stocks or anything all day. Um, we, we use all managed money. So investment funds, mutual funds, seg funds, um, some private placements, things like that. But you have to be doing this full time as a job. I, I think it's, it's even for me, if, I, if you're going to say to me, Jeremy, what are your three best stock ideas? I don't have them um, because I don't study these things. What I study is more economic trends. We look at tax. We look at what are our managers doing. As an example, we're very light on Canadian large cap stocks right now. We have been for years. It's a pretty overvalued market. It's overcovered, but we have a much bigger exposure to Canadian small cap names that most people probably haven't heard of. But you have to have people in that world who are immersed in this, not people trying to go, well, Shopify sounds cool. Let's buy some of that. So um, it's, it's the thing you have to you have to choose, I think, what you do for a living. And a lot of our clients, these are busy professionals. And again, we have to be gentle about this, but to say, you can do this yourself, but then you've got to devote a lot of time to it. And you've got to really try to take out these biases as much as you can. And it's tough to do. No, I think I would also imagine that in the last kind of five, probably even five to eight years, the, the rapid increase in accessibility, like there's very little barriers now to think you should be able to do, you know, I used to work in the fitness years ago. I don't know how many guys I met. I'm like, well, I'm a guy. I should just know how to work out, right? I'm like, well, why would you know that? Like, is this some mm-hmm. mythical knowledge that's passed down in your brain from generation to generation? Like, but I find with financial, there is sometimes, and I've just circles of friends and some that are like, I know I'm not good at that. I don't touch it. Where others are like, well, I should be. So I'm going to be, even though I'm not. And there's this weird rationale sometimes. And, and now with technology, there's no barrier to, to just diving right in. And you, yeah. you, you can lose as much money as you want really quickly. <laughs> Well, there's no barrier to getting this information and there's tons of information out there. My argument would be how much of that is filtered and who, who's actually done some analysis of this information. Really, when you're, when you're putting something out there as a member of the media, and, that, and it's a difficult job, don't get me wrong. It's, you've got to come up with new content all the time. And, and there's information all the time at your fingertips. But is it actionable? Does it mean anything? Can you, can you do anything with that? Should you do anything with that? And that's where, uh, you know, to your point, why would anyone be good at that if they haven't really trained and studied for it? I, I, when I was at McGill, I, got, I had the good fortune to hang out with a couple of very senior surgeons on a regular basis. And you watch some of the procedures they did or they would describe it to you. And, you know, that's the kind of career where nobody would, would look at that career and go, oh, I could just probably read a couple of books and do that. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's and, hope. And yet, if you look at not just my profession, but let's look at um, real estate agents or lawyers or, you know, any any professional like that where you can read a lot about it. You know, let's say you're getting a will done. Do you want to go to a lawyer and spend fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars to get a will when you can just Google free will online hmm. and answer a couple of questions and a will pops out? I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but for for a lot of these professions, my, mine included, um, there is there is a way to do these things yourself, uh, and a, a client would have to ask, is that the best way to do it? Maybe if you have a very simple situation, doing your own will online is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, doing your own tax return, you could do that if you had a couple of T4s. Um, pretty easy to do yourself. Right. But as things get slightly more complex, um, it's probably better to use an advisor of some sort, whether that's a robo-platform, whether it's an advisor like us, whether it's someone at a bank. Uh, there's lots of good advisors out there, um, but it's it's the kind of of career where there's a perception that you could do a lot of this stuff yourself as a client. There definitely is, and there's and I think there's a whole world of technology that's conspiring to make you believe that that's true. And we've all seen the Quest Trade ads, which are positioning the advisor as the enemy in those yeah. in those those ads. Really, I'm a marketer, so it's a well done ad campaign, but it doesn't elevate the advisor. So, hey, curious question. Let's talk about advisors because I don't think I don't personally think, and this is now I'm getting on my own soapbox here. Not all advisors are created equal. <laughs> Uh, I've met a lot of advisors over the years in my younger years before my situation was maybe different and I had access to different people, but they were, they sold products is more what it felt like. They were felt like more like salespeople than they did advisors. Cause when I started asking questions of like, Hey, I've got this much money. I've got these three scenarios. What's best. And they would him and ha, nobody could answer it. Like, well, but you should buy this. So I don't know, curious on your thoughts of maybe the industry, your, your industry looking, looking at it honestly around the difference between what makes an advisor and what makes somebody who's a salesperson. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I think traditionally, most advisors have been salespeople. And normally that's either they're selling insurance products or they're selling investments of some sort. Um, and we as an industry haven't done a really good job of broadening that out to say, what is an advisor, what is an advisor really doing here? And for an intelligent client like yourself, I think the logical question is, if they can't answer my questions and I'm paying them money, why am I doing that? Uh, so my dentist, for example, I've known my dentist for 25 years. I actually like dentistry a lot. I'm very curious about the science of it. And when I go in to see him, doc, Dr. Haggerty, uh, I had a couple of crowns put on recently and he explained the procedure. I had some questions. Uh, I'm very picky about colors and things like that. He knows that. So he had his color match guy come in and then I read in the paper uh, the next day, Alberta dentists are the highest paid in Canada. At no point am I thinking I should go back down to Dr. Haggerty and start arguing about his fees. What I'm thinking is this guy takes really good care of me. He answers my questions. There's a real personal touch there. So I, I use that analogy a lot that if a professional is doing a good job and a client's getting value, people aren't really aggravated about fees. They get aggravated when they're paying a fee and they're thinking, well, this person's not answering my questions. I can do this myself. And that resentment starts and it's real. And I think it's it's really because a lot of the traditional advisors over the years have have just sold product and not done a more full suite of services, which really is what helps the client. Is there an ex accessibility issue if someone's you know someone's got a hundred thousand in their portfolio to invest, or maybe even fifty? Like like let's 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 normalize as much as we can. It's COVID. A lot of people have had a tough year, but a lot of people have saved extra. We can talk about even that phenomenon. But then someone else comes in with a million dollars in their of investable assets. Is there an access to service challenge there? Like, again, you say dentistry and there's a standard, all dentists are kind of, or hopefully you're still going to get personalities, but there is a level that you need to play at to be in that space where I did a basic securities course. I work at a bank and I'm now sitting in front of someone and I've got 50 grand versus now I maybe sit in front of you and I've got a million. I feel like the service level is going to be different though. Yeah, I, I think so. I would actually say more so in Canada than the, or more so in the U.S., than in Canada. I think in Canada, what the banks have done a good job of is really leveling that, that playing field. And quite frankly, if you walked into a bank branch tomorrow and you had 10 grand to invest, you'd probably get treated pretty well by somebody in that branch. You know, they would have a good balanced fund for you. You get to talk to a real person. Whereas if you walked into, let's, let's say RBC, private client, mm -hmm. downtown office tower, you walk in, <laughs> let's say you have 10 million, you're going to get more personalized service. But the interesting thing in Canada is that you're going to have a lot of the same products, actually. Okay. So if you were to look at that $10 million portfolio compared to $10,000, you'd probably have that RBC balance fund in both. Uh, so what they add around that at the private client level is they have these experts, much like we do, um, but it's still, it, how can I put this? It, I think those those people are still kind of underserved because there's not one relationship manager only dealing with that client. You have to talk to their insurance person, talk to their wills and estate person, talk to their tax experts. It's a bit of a, so you, you, get, you, get your, you get your pit crew a little bit almost. <laughs> yeah. So it's not that different than somebody with, you know, let's say with five grand to invest who yeah. does their tax H&R block and did their will online. Um, it's still this kind of decentralized model. And what we, what we've tried to create at CH is where we knit all those services together. And our model for that, there's there's some U.S.-based advisors who do a really good job of that. Um, and I always, my joke, partly tongue-in-cheek, is that it's the Mayo Clinic of finance, where you have everything from diagnosis to surgery to treatment to follow-up all in one place. And, and that's what I think the best advisors do. Well, because they're all interrelated to your point. Like it's all, it's all, it's all connected. You know, it's like if you, years ago I worked at fitness, like if you had a good nutrition coach and a good trainer, you got way better results. But if they never talked to each other and didn't interrelate, sometimes you as the individual didn't relay the right information and you didn't get the best results. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know why I'm making the fitness analogy, but just, and so many individuals I find like, I, do you, like, 
so many people I, I find have a resistance to money. And I don't mean like we all love money, so don't get me wrong there. But just like, I don't understand it. It's math, it's numbers. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a pushback. And I have some friends that do that. But as they've gotten older, they're like, oh, I can't like, this isn't going to, this attitude isn't going to get me where I want to go. So maybe the psychology, yeah. even your thoughts around that, as people be take more, I think we're moving into a world where because we have so much access to information, people are, are becoming more empowered with their own health, with their own finance, which is a good thing. But then the lead to is we jump on every everything on the internet. So I guess, what are your thoughts of somebody who just like kind of stays away from money or just, oh, I don't want to even deal with it. And because in the long run, that could actually, well, that could hurt them. Yeah, I, I think it's something where you have to, you have to deal with it at some level. And what what we try to do is to make sure that people feel things are under control. They're getting information at the level they want. And then the rest of the time, they don't worry about it. So my favorite clients are the ones, not the ones who really say, I don't know anything about this. You do it. I don't care. Those ones actually concern me a bit because we have to give them some understanding. Conversely, those who always want to tussle with you, let's say, well, I don't like that idea. I want to do this. I want to do that. So the balance there is we want them to be informed at the level they want to be informed and then empowered. And then they feel safe and secure. Because I really think if someone truly says, I don't, I don't want to think about money. It's too complex. I'm not going to worry about it. They're still going to worry about it. You, you have to. Everywhere you go, it's, I got to pay for gas. I have to pay for groceries. I'm thinking about this. I'm, everything revolves around a financial transaction of some sort. So the, I think the more people try to say, I'm going to put my head in the sand and not think about it, I would suggest that they worry even more about it. So something has to happen to alleviate that worry. And that's normally why clients come to us in the first place. Something's going on in their life and they're like, hey, I could use a second opinion on this, or this is this is concerning me. Can you help me with this? So event-based, like something actually happens to make you go, whoa, okay, I need to pay attention here. Yeah, and that's where I think COVID is a huge, there might be a, a really huge shuffling of the deck, so to speak, in terms of advisors. Because the past 10 years, Alberta oil and gas accepted, Canadians have done pretty well financially in terms of their, their net incomes have gone up. Um, net worth has gone up. And a lot of people will say, well, my advisor is decent. And we'll say, well, we'll describe what our firm does. And they'll say, well, your firm sounds better, but they won't make that switch. And it's because they like the person, they're good enough, they've done okay for them. But this is a year where if you were going, hey, wait a minute, I feel like I'm on quicksand now, then I think people are going to be looking around and there'll be some money in motion. And they'll say, well, I don't need an advisor at all, or I need a better advisor. No, I, nothing, nothing as, as they joke, and I'm not saying this to minimize COVID, but don't ever, never waste a good crisis, as they say, give yeah, you a reason yeah. to kind of flip everything on its head. What have you seen? There's obviously lots of articles around that, although there's been a huge portion of the population that's been hit financially in a negative way, there's also been a significant increase in household savings over the last kind of 10, 11 months for the people that were maybe all of a sudden still were employed, but all of a sudden now didn't go out, minimized expenses. Are you seeing that personal savings is going up and has, has it, has that cycle found its way into different investment strategies yet? Or are we still on that cycle? I think it's sort of a bifurcated cycle. I think for people, and, and I know a lot of people who, um, let's say my Philharmonic friends who really have been unemployed for a lot of this year and are on CERB and things like that. I think for people at a lower level of income, they're spending every nickel they're getting because they need to, you know, the benefit payments. It's been a really tough time for them. I think for the people who already were pretty well off, but who can't travel, a lot of our clients, the biggest expense is travel and they can't travel now. So you're, I, I think what you're going to see when the numbers shake out is that people at higher net worth levels have got wealthier and those at lower incomes have actually got poorer. Uh, and, I, and I hate saying that because I feel, uh, you know, there should be a way to make everyone better off. But when you're getting these benefit payments and you need to feed your family, um, you're probably not thinking about saving that much. So I think maybe the net savings rate has gone up, but it's probably tilted more towards high people that were high net worth anyway. Which I'm going to just be blunt is unfortunate because it creates that have and have not. It perpetuates that have and have not imbalance of of kind of that wealth gap, that wealth separation, which I think is a bigger issue that you you and I are clearly not going to solve in this podcast. Nor will I wade too deeply into yeah. into that into that area. But that uh, interesting. So crystal ball a little bit. 
you know, obviously not, we're not asking for stock picks, but if you have any, we can talk after. No, I'm just kidding. That's too, that's, that, there's always this, there's that little side hustler in me always like, well, do, well, okay, fine. But do you know anything? What do you see yeah. on, a, on a macroeconomic trend? Like what I know, and we don't know the crystal ball of COVID, what's going to happen. I've read, of course, I read a few economists and they're, you know, crystal ball guys at the best times. They're always predicting the future. Q2, Q3, vaccine in place, summer weather, COVID subsides, economy comes back. Things look really positive. The need for energy globally goes up. I don't know. There's, there's, that's a little bit of my glimpses of some of the crystal balls I've been looking at. What are your thoughts about the future? I, I think all those things are true. And I also think I was on a really interesting call yesterday with uh, with some McGill folks, including a couple of pretty, pretty prominent people who study epidemiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were saying uh, they really feel that by the middle of next year, most people will have been vaccinated. They okay. feel that the vaccine companies are, are under-reporting how many vaccines they're producing. And this is an all-in type of thing. But I do think that so at some point during 2021, we'll be more back to normal. Interest rates are still going to be low. I think the U.S. Fed has come out and said we're not raising them until 2023. Yeah, I saw that. Usual to go that far out. So with easy access to credit, which low interest rates give you, there's still that natural push to expand an economy. And I think one of the great things about, about humanity and COVID has thrown this aside for a little bit or for a bit of a loop. But human beings want to prosper as a species. Uh, one of the coolest things I look at, I, I, I do like stats. I like numbers. You look at the middle class in China. In fact, if you took China and made it 10 classes of citizen, okay, the number of people who were at the, the lower class who in the past 10 years have moved up two or three classes. And that means now they have an air conditioner. Now they might have a car. Um, things that we would take for granted, they have those things now. And you think there are 1.4 billion people in China. That, that's a big market. But the, that's, an, that's an engine that will just drive the world forward. That desire for somebody to better the life of their family, that's really what underpins capitalism and our whole society, is a desire for people to better themselves and future generations. And I, 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 just, I don't think that will ever go away. And that's what ultimately will allow human beings to prosper. And let's not forget that China still is a communist country, but it is very interesting. It's the most capitalist communist country I know of. <laughs> well, well, exactly. And then you know, quite nearby is the second biggest country in the world, India, in terms of population. Yes. Um, my father worked there for a few years, and that is a thriving democracy in the sense it's, I think it's 800 members of parliament. There's 50 political parties, uh, two very different ways of growth, but with the, with the population of those two countries, um, it's that those demographic trends are going to work I think in the favor of worldwide growth over time. I had an advisor that kind of laid out the you know the, the the economics around just demographics and populations, and when you have that right bell, like we're in Canada, we're kind of almost inverting the other way, where we're getting narrow on the bottom. And he lose India, China, and he goes, when you look at that, this is economy that's going to grow just by the sheer volume of the youth at the bottom and a, and a tapering level at the top. And you just like you could do a lot of economic predictions just using demographics, just using birth rates. And and further to that point. That's why the U.S. economy has been the engine of the world for so long, and I think will be for the foreseeable future. It's, I, it's, I believe, the only Western economy that has a positive birth rate right now. Oh, so, interesting. I didn't know that. Americans still have, I mean, a great standard of living, great amount of wealth, uh, but they, they, they still have larger families. What you see most of the time is as people's income goes up, the number of kids they have goes down very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you're comfortable, you, you know, people have better access to birth control. All of a sudden, instead of having 10 kids, you have three and the next generation has two, et cetera. But the U.S. really continues to buck that trend. A lot of very wealthy families that have three, four, five kids. Uh, and that's why I think it will still be the economic engine of the world for the foreseeable future. And we're, we're fortunate enough to be right next to the U.S. And, you know, little pockets aside, we have a very good relationship with that country. Yes. You know, there's always dramas, but that's the world we live in. If it makes for good headlines, but I think fundamentally thoughts on our, uh, I, I think, can I be confident to say that we have a new president in the U S now? I think they've come out now. I think it's like, yeah, yes. yeah I think j- j- just, just this will come out in January. So it'll feel like old news. It'll be a month old, but it has, yeah, yeah. been, we all know it's been a roller coaster of like, wh- where's this going to go? Thoughts on that? Like I hear what you say loud and clear, a largest trading partner, uh, a lot of economic runway, you know, the financial engine for the future. That's interesting and talking about China and, and India and how they play into that. But from a Canadian perspective or, or from a U.S. perspective, how do you think that's going to be for us even in the, in the short term with some of the changes from one, one color to the other for, from a presidency? 
I think one of the benefits of of a Biden presidency, and I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm Democrat or Republican. I'm I'm generally a small C conservative, where I believe in business and entrepreneurship, but also good social programs. I, I think we're what Biden is going to be good at. He's pretty much a lifetime politician, so he knows how to make deals. So people will say, "Well, he said no to Keystone, therefore he's going to veto it and veto it." Maybe not. You know, like that's absolutely a negotiable point. I think what what Biden's going to look at uh, and Kamala Harris and their team is how do we further the best interest of the U.S. and that's almost always in the best interest of Canada as well. Unless you have a really protectionist government, I don't think they are. Um, it's the longest undefended border in the world. Economic systems are very similar, and so I think generally it'll be good for Canada. I think people look at Trump and think he was a business person, therefore that's good for business. He he was, but he's unpredictable, you know. Yeah. So he'll just slap aluminum tariffs on, do this. I'd rather have somebody who knows everything is horse trading, everything's going to be negotiated. I don't think Biden will ever come out and say something extreme that will that will tick off the trading partners. So I think it'll be much more of a back to business relationship. And when you have a divided House and Senate in the U.S. If that's almost always good for business because one party doesn't get too far ahead with their own ideology. I, back to the horse trading. There's, yeah, well, you, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours versus more volatile, unpredictable, which the financial markets don't like, don't like risk and don't like not knowing or thinking of knowing what's coming. I even heard this morning, I think today, uh, or at least recently, Ottawa came out with their new carbon tax situation and, you know, really bad for the West and, you know, bad for us and that, that, that good East West battle that constantly goes on, which is another topic. But they did say, which I thought was interesting, that it, if you if you run it out and you look at Keystone, you look at some of obviously what Biden has been saying about bringing the U.S. back to the Paris Accord, and Canada having very strong position there could actually really lend well to a positive view towards Keystone. So it's funny they ran it out and they said, well, yeah, but if you think about it at this level, it'll make this thing here maybe a lot more amicable because we're actually aligned over here. I just thought it was an interesting like run the run the political game out farther than like the immediate like ah oh, screw Ottawa kind of kind of mindset. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And for someone like me who I am in Quebec quite a bit, I'm in Toronto quite a bit, I'm in Vancouver on a regular basis, I, I do get to see the whole country. And I think, and I'm a proud Albertan, I love this province, this will always be my home. But I think we have to get away from that mindset of it's a zero sum game. And Ottawa getting $1 means Alberta loses a dollar. There's, there's got to be, you know, thinking that way doesn't lead to productive relationships, I don't think. Uh, having this, well, we're going to defend the West. We've got to be fiercely independent all the time. Um, we're in a modern economic system. We, we have to have trading partners. We have to act like civilized human beings and stay away from a lot of the shrill commentary, which is great for headlines and stuff. But ultimately, things usually happen calmly and they're negotiated. Yeah, I'm not sure. Were you, were you in Quebec back in referendum time? I, you know what? I've, I'm one of the rare... Uh, Anglo uh, Western Canadians who voted in that referendum. Oh, interesting. And I, uh, they, okay, I could ask you which way you voted. I'm going I'm I'm to assume you voted red. But, anyways, that's another conversation. You know, that's one where every vote counted, right? It was yes, like, yeah, yes, yes, it did. Um, so, my brother and I got to vote in that election, and basically, our entire apartment building was disenfranchised. Some of the stuff going on in the election was just crazy. They would come in and say, Well, you're not a real Quebecer, you, you can't vote. So that was so a crazy time that I think Albertans, when people start throwing around the Wexit thing, I have very little time for because I saw how much damage and how much that stalled the economy in Quebec out. Like, and it was polarizing. Like, I saw people like getting into fights on the lawn of the voting at the at the church in the small town where I grew up. Like, that was a crazy time of of, of division that was not. I don't think did anything but set that economy back for a few for quite a few years. Well, and, and the really sad part about it is the premier at the time, the real firebrand at all is Jacques Perizzo. Yes. Is, has a graduate degree in economics, I believe from London School of Economics, one of the best schools in the world. So it's one thing if you have some, let's say, uneducated person going, Let, let's rile up the population and separate. This is a guy who knows better. He understands that this is not going to be good economically for the province, but it plays to that low-level base which I think Trump did such a good job of. You know, you stir people up and pretend you have a solution. You know you don't, but it gets traction, right? People vote for you. It's exciting. They're emotional about it. And that was the really sad part about it is I think Perizzo knew that you know, three quarters of what he was saying just wasn't going to happen, but that's what he had to sell. 
And so I had a conversation with uh, Scott Gravel, who was the CEO of Atabotics yesterday. We, we got into a little bit of, of philosophy. And, you know, he brought that up in the U.S. and just being on the East Coast and spending some time in the West Coast. And he said, you know, the amazing power of getting a, a whole group of people to vote for something that is actually against their best interest. But they yeah. get so focused on the, the rhetoric of, of the issues of the day that they don't realize that they're actually voting against themselves in the longer term. It's just the way he said it. And, you know, you start, you start looking at the problems left to right versus actually up and down and seeing what's actually going on. The power to influence a whole group of people, and we've seen it across the border, to do something that maybe actually isn't better for them, but man, they're riled up about it. <laughs> well, and I think what, what a good politician does, and politics is a tough, like it's a blood sport, and I don't know <laughs> the people that are in that, and whether I agree or disagree with them, I, I, it, it's a tough life. I, I really think it is. But everybody wants a one-issue solution, simple solution that they can understand. So, you know, if I say, hey, the water's not working in your house, but if you vote for me, I'll turn the water back on. Pretty easy. What about the 50 things you don't agree with that I also believe in? doesn't matter. I want my water back on. So people really want to boil it down to a simple issue they can understand and they feel like someone's helping to solve their problem. And I think they'll overlook a lot of other stuff as long as that their issue is being addressed, which in Quebec is a defense of the French language. And French is a beautiful language. I, um, you know, I, I, I love speaking it, hearing it. It's a great culture. It's a great way to live, you know, the going out late at night, going out with friends. Oh, but absolutely. People, hey, you're warming my heart talking of, talking of these things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but it's also a language that, that arguably is dying too. And that's where I think Quebec really, that, that was the issue is that we feel as a good Quebecer that our French culture is being impinged on by the U.S., by the rest of Canada, and we need to defend that. And that's what Perizzo tapped into so well, was that sense that we are getting marginalized with our culture. And it's a pretty visceral thing. You know, it's, you, you can really tap into someone's deep emotions then. And Quebecers are a passionate bunch. Like, you know, I, 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 my wife always jokes, if I put handcuffs on, I can't speak because I got to talk with my hands and tell a big story. And yeah. cause if you didn't, no one would eat, you wouldn't even, you just blend into the background and no, you wouldn't even be heard in the room. <laughs> well, what I love best about Quebec, especially Montreal where I live for, for many years is it's a really inclusive culture. When you get past the headlines of the language police and signs being different, different fonts and things like yeah. that. But the, what I love about the island of Montreal, uh, I believe more than half people on that island speak three languages, not just two, uh, three. And they celebrate that, but they're very inclusive about it. If you go to a restaurant, let's say a, a Spanish restaurant or a Peruvian restaurant in Montreal, they're so happy that you're there and curious about their culture. And that's, I think Montreal just does that so well, better than anywhere else in Canada, really, really being inclusive on a, on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. I completely agree with you. When I moved to Alberta, I had a little bit of reverse culture shock. And I say this very openly. I'm like, this is like, it's just all, it's all white people. I'm like, what is going on? Like Montreal, you just grow up and you realize the, the, the advantages of growing up in a multicultural environment and being sitting around a table, having wine or beers or whatever, because it's Montreal and two people are talking French and these people are talking something else. And you're saying half things in English. It actually creates a really dynamic perspective on how you actually see the world a little bit more broadly. Uh, it, it, but it just it's just the way it is until you leave and go, oh, this was a huge gift I didn't realize because this is where I grew up. It just was what it was. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. And then you just really start to appreciate the diversity of this whole country and the fact that it's such a big country, but there's so many cool parts to it that are different. And there is something that links us all together. Um, but it's it's uh, there are definitely differences as you move from west to east and north to south in this country for sure. So, which what makes it interesting? Like go go on a, go on a good road. You know, my my wife and I do big motorcycle road trips, and we've gone even through the U.S. You go down the West Coast and then just head across, you know, through the Midwest and into get into the eastern side, and like it's so interesting the dynamics and like small town America is it's it's a universal concept, but there's very big differences. And you go across Canada, it takes a little longer to get from place to place because it is more spread out. But you're right, like. Quebec and rural Saskatchewan are not the same, but you're going to get the same level of openness and there's going to be a level of kindness, but there's going to be like, you know, layers of difference. Anyways, we got way off track on this conversation here. <laughs> we both are getting you know, bouncing off each other, but no, really interesting. And I think that when you think about financials and you think about investing, having a broader perspective and, you know, thinking about, we also have the advantage to invest globally. 
we're not tied yeah. to investing, like you even said, you know, large cap Canadian companies that get a lot of press. What about all the small things that are going on? What are the companies that are actually maybe making money and that are maybe just don't have the right PR campaigns? You don't get, you don't hear about them. That's the value of having an investor, a partner that's going to, you know, give you exposure to other ways and other parts of the world and opportunities of how to approach your investing. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one example of just a, uh, a sector and how you can find little opportunities. So uh, let's call Amazon a sector or the okay. whole, you know, online ordering delivery kind of model. So Amazon right now, it's awesome company. Uh, they, they've really, I think, done a great job of making it sort of the supermarket of everything. Uh, delivery times are super quick most of the time, uh, but it's a pretty overvalued company right now in that you're paying a lot of money per dollar of earnings to, to buy that company. It's well covered. Everyone knows it. If you drop down a level or two, it's say, well, you don't see Amazon trucks driving around. You see a bunch of distributors and you know independent companies and so forth. Several of those companies, you can actually buy them. Um, so one of them is called Element Fleet in the US. And it's one of Amazon's distribution companies. It trades at a much more reasonable multiple. Most people haven't heard of it. But as Amazon grows, Element Fleet will as well. And so... Uh, companies like that, I think they're, they're smaller, they're not well known, but they're tying into uh, trends that are going on. Uh, another big one these days is any kind of warehousing, which relates to distribution. If you have purpose-built warehouses, and there's lots of independent companies out there that do this, um, those people are doing really well right now because all these goods that are being shipped just in time and so forth, you have to have places to store this stuff so people will get it quickly. And so, and one thing we have a lot of in Canada and the U.S. is there's a lot of space. So you can build these facilities. Uh, and a, a third one I would say is self-storage, getting back to people storing stuff. I have a, a friend who owns a company in Toronto that has a bunch of these facilities. And uh, he says, Jeremy, what do you think happens when somebody who has a storage unit dies? Like, do people go in and clean it out? And he goes, no. The, the heirs come in, they buy another storage unit next to it, and they fill that with stuff too. So he goes, it's this ever-expanding business that never contracts. <laughs> so so our, like, uh, the, the real commentary there is our addiction to stuff, but that's, a, yeah, that's another podcast. But if you know that's the trend, you're talking about long-term trends. Yeah. If that's the trend, is there a way we can capitalize on that? As opposed to saying, I really believe in downtown Calgary office space. That's where my office is. I, I, I love being downtown. Um, but it's 35% at least empty right now. Is that the best place to invest your money? Probably not. Yeah. I do I do really like what you said about looking at a sector and then looking at all the auxiliary services. And I can't help but think that. I'm like, man, you got to invest in the delivery companies as I watch them juggle and fight for parking spots on my street to do the deliveries. And like, I've got like a six house window that I see and it's nonstop delivery trucks. And that's happening on every street around town, to your point. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's not as sexy and it doesn't get in the news and you don't see the CEO of, of probably Element Fleet out there, you know, ringing the bell. But, yeah. you, but you know, when you look into it and actually lean in and the average, the average individual, unless you're going to make a part-time job of that, you're not going to stumble across those necessarily. Back to your point. And, and those companies make money. Um, one, one company, this is a private company, but it illustrates the point. So you know those Ferrero Rocher chocolates? Everyone knows those. You get them around Christmas time. You, you would just assume that company is owned by one of the big conglomerates. Uh, it isn't. It's, it's a family-owned Italian company that just quietly makes money. Uh, the only reason I know this is they made an acquisition about a year ago, and it was the first acquisition in over 20 years. They acquired a small Swiss candy maker. So there are businesses like that, much like CH Financial, where there are companies that are smaller, but they generate a lot of cash. And ultimately, to get back to a really central point, that's what every investor in a company wants is cash flow. You might say, no, what I really want is long-term capital gain. <clears throat> what, what protects you, though, is getting a good dividend or a good distribution, company reinvesting their cash. It's, it, every investor wants that from a 25-year-old to a 95-year-old because ultimately that's what makes – if your company is making money, it is sustainable. If it's not making money, it's just not going to be around very long. 
No, there is. Well, there there is those certain fundamentals, and you know, are, are we heading to some kind of a uh, you know boom bust kind of cycle around some of the tech? Back to like you said, if companies aren't making money, how long are they going to be around? Obviously, we you know we you and I were around back in the dot com boom, and the, the the promise of riches quickly eroded. I've heard that we're on a similar track, but then I've heard no, 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 it's not like that at all. Thought thoughts from your side of some of these tech stocks that we are our household names, but are actually not making any money. Well, here's something interesting. I think if you look at um, Tesla, although I, I, you call it a, a tech company, you have Tesla, you have SpaceX, owned by the same person, really. Uh, Elon Musk being the majority shareholder or the you know big shareholder of those. Neither one of those companies make money. And if I'm looking at those, going, what's probably a more sustainable business model? I probably would still say Tesla because I think electric cars are here to stay. They've had some hiccups for sure, but they're they're the first mover in that space. SpaceX. It, it, that's a lot of money per launch. There's a ton of risk. And is that going to make money long-term? Tough to say. Um, you look at a company like, let's go to Twitter and Square, for example. Again, these, these a CEO owning, or, you know, leading both companies. Um, and Jack Dorsey is an interesting dude. I, I met him a couple of times in San Francisco. He's like, it's tough to run two companies. If you look at Twitter and you look at Square, that payment platform, mm-hmm. Which of those is going to be around in 10 years? Like I'd go with Square. It's those cool things you just put in your phone, you swipe your card, anyone can become a payment terminal. Um, That seems more sustainable to me as opposed to uh, is Twitter going to be around in five or 10 years? Who's to say? I, I think it's more unlikely that they will uh, the, the, that they'll be well, around. You think of payment processing? That's almost like a utility in the sense of like as the gig economy perpetuates, as like you know, as 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 that's something that just needs to happen in the background. Where unfortunately, something like Twitter will fall out of fashion. Where payment processing doesn't fall out of fashion, it just hopefully improves and gets more access. Yeah, gets yeah. more access. Yeah. So it's just funny that both of those examples. It's mm-hmm. one person leading two companies, but looking at it from the outside with a little bit of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It, one just seems a lot more sustainable than the other. When you, when you like apply a little bit of you know, just think just thinking it through of you know what what where where the where the two categories that they live in being very very different. But yeah, yeah exactly. but, but both but both technology plays in one way, just in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and another example, let's say a more local example in Canada would be um, you mentioned Quest Trade earlier. Mm-hmm. So Quest Trade, Wealth Simple, and in fact, IA, our parent company. Uh, owns a, owns a robo platform called Invisor, okay. so uh, so it's a very similar platform which underpins some of the stuff that we do. So Wealth Simple is actually owned by PowerCorp, one of the biggest biggest companies in Canada. On its own, is Wealth Simple sustainable? Maybe, maybe not. But is Invisor with with an advisor network around it sustainable? I think there's a better chance than to say you're just a, you're a standalone robo platform, low margin, pretty heavy tech cost versus let's try to put it into more of an advisor network. You probably have higher margins doing that and it's a more sustainable business. But who have people heard about? Wealthsimple, Quest Trade, not Invisor. But if I'm fast forwarding again, five or 10 years, which is the area I like to look in, um, a platform with advisors around it is probably more sustainable. Well, and you're seeing a lot of that, you know, the, the myth of technology completely being self-sustaining and doing its own thing versus the blended, almost omni-channel approach that we all look for as consumers, where I want my world all knitted together. And so for those times I need the personal touch, I want it. But for the times I don't, I want it to be fully automated and easy. And I think the platforms that play the line between understanding what the customer needs where will do better in the long run versus, oh, you only need this one answer and it's the universal answer for everything. I find as humans, we're not like that. We, we, we have, back to your point, I think you said earlier, we very much want what we want when we want it, right? Yeah, and that's where we as advisors have to be adaptable. So we have the tech, we have the platform. Early in my career, my average meeting was about an hour and 12 minutes, my, my team told me, and it was always in person. And it was kind of a, it was a pretty structured format. Now, I have a lot of meetings with millennials. Uh, of course, everyone's on Zoom these days or Teams or things like that. But a lot of times it's, okay, I got, I got 15 minutes here. Client says, I need you for 15 minutes. There's a specific issue I want to talk about. So maybe I talk to that client eight times a year, as opposed to back in the day, you'd meet with your advisor maybe a couple times a year. You look at the whole portfolio, you talk about everything. Um, as advisors, I think we have to adapt to how do people want to digest this information? And if you're 
and advisors sort of stuck in the old world of these very structured meetings. And I've seen it with our millennial clients. You just, you lose them. You lose their attention and then you lose them as clients. You've got to be really, really adaptable to how, how do they want to receive and digest information? No, and it's such a, just back to the, the concept of just overarching customer centricity. And, you know, uh, you, you can't always move just willy-nilly based on your customer's demands, but going, okay, how, how does my process run? But then what am I willing to adapt to meet their needs and meet them kind of where, where they are? And I think that's an interesting transition as you see technology come rapidly blasting into every industry. <laughs> it's not a sector, it's just an underpinning. And the people, the individuals that want to just do it the old way, that resist some of those changes, it doesn't mean giving up the way you do something, but it does mean adapting to your their needs of your customer. And that's what's going to leave people, I would say, arguably out in the cold as technology comes on stronger and disrupts more and more industries like one after another. Yeah. And that's really the, the art of business. If you look at a company like GE years ago, so back back in the day, GE is about 120 years old and they make light bulbs and, and jet engines and really industrial type stuff. Mm-hmm. The 2008 financial crisis, the mighty GE almost went bankrupt because their financial instrument division um, took a huge loss. It was over 50% of the revenues of the company and it basically went to about zero. So you have this great industrial company for years and years, which says, hey, we can make a lot of money doing financing. And that almost sunk the company. So, so that really, I think, is the art of business to say, do we, how, do, how far do we drift from our core and have it still make sense? Like in our case, if we said, we do all the things that we do right now, but we also want to have the CH casino division. Does it really make sense? What kind of exposure do we have? Is it worth that capital? Because everybody wants to expand and grow. But if you, if you start getting out of your comfort zone, that can really hurt your business. And, and so that's what I would call the art of business, that interplay between what you're really good at and what you're striving to do. There's, you really have to walk that line all the time. Yeah, the reality of you know competitive advantages or core competencies and what you're actually good at, and I've seen many like in my world, people come like, here's our strap plan, and when you're like, and we want a brand to support it, but when you start trying to dig because your brand isn't your logo and your website, it's the how you work. When you start digging on the how, they're like, well, they haven't figured that out yet. We just saw some white space. We said that we were going to do the thing. Now we want a campaign. But when you start unpacking of like, do you actually have the skills? Like, what's your workflow that makes this true? So once the customer engages with you, whether it's product or service it's going to hold up and it's like, well, this is our strategy. Like, well, yeah, but how are you going to do anyways? It's, it's, it, it leads to an awkward conversation that if not resolved, just creates bigger problems down the road. Yeah. And I think it leads, it leads to people starting to reach for things that become way out of their comfort zone. And if you're doing that now with other people's money, that's yes. a bigger level of risk, right? Yes. Living out of your comfort zone can be, can be a lot of fun, but doing it with other people's money, that's, that's a different equation. Yes. Do that, with, do that with your own money, and, but really say, I am taking a flyer on this and it might go to zero. It might make 10 times more, but it's got to be that kind of mindset. And, I, and I'd say to everyone, do that with, with your own money. The, the, you get into, into big problems doing that with someone else's money, either yeah. a person or a bank. Uh, it's a different level of risk. And what you said earlier, make sure you track both so you have an honest an honest reflection point at the end of the year of the of the of the winners and the losers. So you can actually, you know, a, a cumulative what's actually happened last year. That's right. You're like an honest tally. How about that? Yeah, I think that's yes. At least be honest. Yeah. At least keep your own scorecard. Don't show it to anybody, but at least keep it for yourself. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, we don't get into like who's from your perspective, from you know the clients that you work with. Who's your target? Who's your sweet spot? Like who who should uh, listen to this podcast and uh, give you a call? I think the sweet spot is just really just about anybody who who wants someone they can trust to help them a bit financially. And when I say a bit, it could be a lot, but I, I really believe that that most people that I encounter are they're pretty intelligent. Uh, we don't talk down to them. Maybe they have one issue they need some help with, and and what we like to do is then say take that one issue and broaden it out to how else can CH work with you. So our bread and butter has been oil and gas executives, pretty much. Now we branched into some other industries like tech, like airlines, things like that. And those people have been really, really good to us. A lot of my clients I've known for my whole career, 22 years now. And so we always are appreciative of that business, uh, sort of a, a, a reasonably wealthy retired person. Uh, that's been our bread and butter over the years. The past two or three years, though, we have a lot more millennial clients, uh, next-gen clients, as we call them, to steal the ATP tennis term. And... These are people that are 
children of clients, grandchildren, and now they're leading to other clients who aren't even related to those people at all. And what I love about those millennial clients is they're keen, they're curious, they have access to all the tech, as we talked about. They still want someone to care about them, though. And that's not different from an 80-year-old. So a 20-year-old and an 80-year-old are not different in that regard. So what we really like is anybody who is aspirational. I love that word where they aspire to something greater than they have right now. Not just money, but in terms of um, lifestyle. We do a lot of philanthropic advising too, setting up charitable foundations, um, things of that nature to, to really get people thinking about not just them and their their micro environment, but the next generation and society in general. And I think just about everybody of any age, that appeals to them. So as long as somebody is willing to take some advice and work with a partner, we love having those kind of conversations. I like I love the word aspirational. It's a word that resonates for me, but I like what you said and I think something just to underpin. It's not money for the sake of money. It's money for what you can create with it. Whether that's uh, you know j- philanthropy, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's legacy, it's not just look at a pile of money. It it is a tool, right? And I think it's good to we we need money sometimes we give it we give it the wrong power. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, uh, one of my favorite lines, and I've, I've stolen this from the show Billions, if anyone knows okay. that. Is, that's, a great, that's a great show. <laughs> it's an awesome show. Uh, but one of the characters on that show said, money without purpose is just gluttony. And I'm not saying that in a religious way, but I'm saying, why would you just accumulate a bunch of stuff for no reason? And those are the clients we, we have the most challenge with, I would say, is the ones who have accumulated a lot of money but there's no purpose for it. They, they worked and worked and worked. We have a lot of first-generation wealth in our office, so people really, really worked hard. They lived the Canadian dream. They had kids. They have grandkids. They made a lot of money. But now they're kind of at loose ends. Like, what do I do with all this stuff? And that's where I feel as advisors, we, we, have to, we really have to help them. Because, uh, you know, someone who, who either has money or doesn't, but if there's no purpose in life, it's, it doesn't really matter if you have money or not. And, and so a lot of what we do, it's, it's funny because I did study psychology as well in school. And a lot of what I do on a daily basis is more psychological, where I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what does this person need and how can we help them? And yeah, we have lots of tools that we can use, but so much of it is still just empathetic listening. You're really trying to understand somebody else and how can we help this person? And, and that's the best part of the job is that you really, at the end of the day, are, are helping a lot of people. And that has spinoffs into society as well, which is really cool. It is it is a long reach, and money money provides you a lot of opportunity to have impact with your own immediate family, but then you know beyond. And I think Calgary is a fantastic city. I'll give Calgary a huge plug for its generosity and its willing to contribute. You know, we every year I do a, a, an initiative where we supply cu- toys and and gift cards and a whole bunch of stuff for all the families at Cups, and we had our best year this year. People reached out to me and said, you know what? I had a challenging year, but I know there's people that had more challenges. I want to contribute more than ever. And to me, that's just such a testament to the city that we do live in. Like I am Canadian and I have a great Montreal and Quebec heritage, but there's something about Calgarians. I like it is we do have some superpowers and being generous and open to each other is definitely one of them here for sure. I think I think that you hit the nail on the head that the two the two best things about this province are that which you just described and that great entrepreneurial inclusive spirit where people don't really care where you went to school, what degree you have, but you come out here, work hard, be creative, collaborate with people. It's such a level playing field. It's it's what I've always loved about this province from the day I got here 22 years ago. I couldn't agree with you more. And like, again, I love Montreal. I love Toronto. I spent a lot of time there. I have an office in Toronto. It's not the same. There's a level here. I always used to joke, like if you can provide value and someone can see that, they will give you an opportunity. It doesn't matter who your dad was. doesn't matter who your uncle is. You know, in Montreal, those things matter in a different way because Montreal is a great place, but there is a little bit more of a wall between sometimes you and success or you and certain parts of the economy or the business world. In Calgary, it's it's value-driven and connection. It's, it's not where yeah. you went to school and what diplomas on your wall. It's very different here. And the downtown Toronto banking world, you know, even more so in terms of where do you go to school? If you look at, and I, I know a lot of these guys, and, I, and most of them are guys still, and that, that could be a whole topic for another another podcast. <laughs> yes, how do you yes. generate real diversity in the executive levels of companies? Well, first of all, don't pick people that all went to the same school and whose dads all went to the same school. I mean, <laughs> the starter. So. <laughs> Sounds simple when you say it that way, but unfortunately, like unfortunately, right? It's worked that way for a long period of time, and change is slow in those areas. Yeah. So. You know, one of the things I'll just I'll do a quick plug for some a couple of boards I'm I'm involved in here. So the yeah, Science Board that I'm I'm I've chaired for a few years now, 
the Fundex Advisory Council, which is our investment company, and the Calgary Philharmonic Foundation, which I've chaired for a few years. So three boards, two not-for-profit, one for-profit. When I joined those boards, in some cases 10 years ago, it was I think it was literally all men, all three boards, all men, and I was the youngest person on all three of those boards. Now, all these years later, uh, on all three, there are more women than men. I'm not the youngest anymore. There's all different generations on these boards. And that's what I actually, one of the things I'm most proud of is that. And without me ever saying, we need more women, we need this and that, I said, we just have to cast the net a little bit wider. So let's go out and find people and ask them, are you interested? Um, And not just the same contacts we've always had. And just continuing to encourage uh, people. And I really, I think it can be done, but it it takes a leader or leaders who can, diligently and encouragingly provide that that leadership no it's not it's not a lip service comment so you still have to take action like you said you have to reach out and and and, and include more people in those in those conversations because it, it the you include more women you include more diversity at all at all levels that creates energy and it pulls more other people in because they all have their networks their networks as well and i think we're on the right path in canada and calgary and but we still have a ways to go to your point. So it's good to hear some success stories and over a 10 year period of time that you've seen that change. That's awesome. Yeah. The cool thing is one of those boards is based in Calgary. One is based in Toronto and one is based in Montreal. So it's three different areas of the country, which I, I think is really cool. But a sim, but a, a similar transformation across all three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jerry, what's the best way for people to get to be able to get a hold of you? Mm. So we have a, a pretty decent website, some cool videos on there. It's chfinancial.ca. It tells the story of the company. Um, we have a little cartoon video right on the landing page, which is a nice two-minute look at what we do. That's right on the, on the landing page. And then uh, with the help of Parker PR, who's our, our PR firm, uh, we're, we're also pretty big on Instagram right now and uh, and LinkedIn. So Excellent. we post things there quite a bit. Um, some original content and then some we curate from other sources. We always like to give shout outs to other businesses that we like to. So uh, yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn, and then chfinancial.ca. Excellent. If anybody wants to chat with you, I, I know I know you're on LinkedIn. Not to throw out your LinkedIn, but it's such a it's such a great way to connect with people these days. I'm assuming you're available and uh, yeah, that. absolutely. I uh, I spend quite a bit of time on LinkedIn. I, I it's funny. I have my email open and then I have LinkedIn right beside it, so people can always get in touch with me that way. It is a fantastic platform, and I still I find out of all the social media platforms, love them or hate them, LinkedIn is still doing a good job of getting me exactly what I what I expect from it in a very user friendly way. Some of the other ones, I put it this way: sometimes I spend twenty minutes on Instagram, feel a bit guilty about that time spent. Is uh, LinkedIn never feel bad about spending time there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's it's really um, it's almost self policing. It's a really professional platform. It is, and if there's ever any kind of creepy or uh, you know ranty kind of behavior. It's it, it it sort of gets it, it polices itself for the most part, which I think is awesome. It's a great yeah. platform. Yeah, no, you're right. It does. It does. It seemed to be holding a, a certain line better than some of the others have. But let's we'll okay, we'll save that podcast for another day. Yeah, Jeremy, right. I, I really enjoyed our chat. We covered a lot of topics. I appreciate your 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 broad perspective, and I think that was a, that was a great share today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure. I have I have a feeling you and I will be chatting again. You got it. Happy to. Okay. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye.